Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This podcast is part of the Robots Radio Rocket Club, a program designed to help all podcasts reach their full potential. For information about joining the Robots Radio Rocket Club, check out robotsradio.net. Hey, all you heroes and champions, crows, pirates, and inquisitors. Welcome to the Dragon Age Lorecast. I'm Shelby. And I'm Austin. And we are so excited to bring you this podcast. Every episode, we'll be talking about a different topic in the Dragon Age universe. From the Maker to Lyrium to Aravels, we will cover it all. There will be spoilers. And always remember, swooping is bad. Hello, and welcome to the Dragon Age Lorecast, where we talk about all things Dragon Age and the lore of this rich world that we all know and love. My name is Austin or Teacup, and I am one of your hosts for this podcast. And I am Shelby or Sheacup, and I am your other host for this show. So, Shelby, welcome to season three. I know. Can you believe it? I really yeah. can't. I can't. I really can't believe that it's season three. And I just want to take this moment that we're on our season three, which is kind of our third little ideas or like big grouping of topics that we're doing. And I am just overwhelmed by the amount of support that we've gotten for this podcast. When we started not even a year ago with this podcast, I thought we would be lucky to, you know, get 50 followers on Twitter and get a thousand downloads and it has just been overwhelming me overwhelming how much support and more support than that that we got and I just want to say thank you to all of our listeners who have done that and made this one of the best things for me to do yeah I totally ditto to everything you said um I know we put a lot of work into this show but we do it because we love it and we do it for y'all and so we are I am. I'm speaking for you too, Austin. Um, we're just really thankful and grateful that um, y'all like our show and that you appreciate the work we do and that we finally have somebody to talk to Dragon Age, that we finally have so many people to talk about Dragon Age with other than ourselves. So yes, thank you from the bottom of our hearts for all the support you've given us. Um, it's truly been amazing. Yeah. So with that being said, are you ready to talk about some Dragon Age? I am. I'm so excited to tell them about our new series. So let's get into it. All right. Well, um, this has been a long awaited series. I know our factions series took a little bit 
even longer than I was expecting because we were like, oh, how did we forget this one? Or, oh my gosh, I can't believe we forgot this faction. And we just had to keep adding more and more and more. And then we started doing patron episodes. So that took up more time. And then we started doing character deep dives. So it, it has just took a long time, which is totally fine. But this season, season three is all about magic and mages and demons and spirits. The good stuff. Yeah. I mean, like this is the big, one of the biggest issues in all of Dragon Age, right? Like, what do we do with mages? What do we do with magic users? What happens when demons enter our world? Are demons and spirits the same thing? Like these are very basic foundational questions of the entire Dragon Age universe of Thetis. So we're getting into some deep stuff. Yeah. And like, it's very much uh, all of our previous episodes have built to this point in this season. And especially our first season where we talk about Andraste and the Chantry and the Elven Gods and Tevinter and the countries of Thetis and all of this, this issue affects them all. And a lot of the decisions that they make are surrounded by this topic, which is magic. Yeah, absolutely. And like one of the reasons why we didn't want to just jump into this topic is because we felt like there was a lot of other foundational stuff we had to cover first. Like we couldn't just jump into talking about circles without talking about why Tevinter and Ferelden have different views on, um, on, on magic. So we're really getting into some of this deep stuff. And I think this season is going to have a lot of um, ties to the next game. I think this is going to be even more. We're going to keep talking about this. Yes, I really do. Because even though we ended the Mage Templar War and in Inquisition, it is far from over. Yes, exactly. Exactly. All right. Are you ready for me to jump into my fun facts? Always. Okay, well, this episode, we're talking about basically the history of magic. We're going to dive into what magic is, what it isn't, and, you know, what kind um, of magic users are out there. So first off, let me tell you what magic is. Magic is basically a naturally occurring phenomenon in Thetis. It's not something that, like, you can will into existence. It's not something you can buy, obviously. It just occurs naturally. It's kind of like gravity. It just exists. It's just part of our world or even the force in Star Wars. Like it's just there. It permeates everything, but not everyone can use it. And as far as we know currently, this could change, but as far as we know right now, there was not an event that caused magic to come into existence. It's just always been there. Yeah, it's kind of a way to think about it is like magic is foundational to the universe. Like there is no Thetis without magic. It's part of its existence. Whereas like those of you who are fans of The Witcher, you know, they have magic happens through an event that bestows magic upon the world. Um, That's not what's happening here. Magic has always been something that's been around and even before the chantry and before the circles there was magic and mages even though they might have not called themselves mages 
Yes, absolutely. So that's a great transition because some people are born with the ability to interact with, control, and shape magic. We know them as mages. And it's important to note dwarves, as of yet, are not able to be magic users or mages due to their prolonged exposure to lyrium, which grants them a natural immunity to magic. For surface dwarves, this natural immunity does fade over time. But as we know, due to the Descent DLC and in Inquisition, dwarven inability um, to be a magic user could potentially change with Volta's story. So magic also tends to run in bloodlines, um, and especially into Venter. That's something that's very important to them. And they kept extensive genealogies of all families who were known to produce mages. And we know this, that like, this is something we see in the series. Like the Hawk family is a perfect example. If you play a Hawk mage, like their father was a mage and then you have Bethany and your mage Hawk are all mages. And in that same line, the Amels, the warden, if you're a human warden, they're an Amel and they're a mage. Um, And so there's kind of that evidence of magic, but there's also evidence of mages being born to non-magic families basically um connor um eamon son is a perfect example um fainriel also and there's also evidence of magic users who don't produce magical children i think the the primary example of this is felix felix alexius garyon alexius's son from inquisition so that's also a thing but anyway so Where does magic come from? As far as we know, conventional magic originates from the Fade, which is the realm where spirits live and where humans, Kunari, and elves visit during their dreams. Notably, dwarves don't dream. So we'll talk more about that later. And so in in, especially in, in Origins, when the combat system is a little bit more complicated, we use mana a lot and you can drink a lyrium potion to increase your mana, right? Or to replenish your mana. But um, mana is a measurement of your ability to channel energy from the fade. It's not necessarily like a measurement of your magic, um, but it's used to then practice magic. So it's about basically your capacity for using magic, not your ability if that makes sense right and this is a point of like i remember talking in the discord one time about this that you don't necessarily need lyrium to do magic um with a mage lyrium just increases the mage's ability to do magic or gives them a focal point in which to channel it like so they don't have to use their mana to do that yeah exactly Okay, so let's get into the history a little bit. So no one knows who first discovered magic, as I'm sure you could guess. It's been a part of Thetis as long as Thetis' history has been recorded, from the elves of Arlathon to the mages of Tevinter and the establishment of the Chantry. Magic has always been around. But perhaps the first magic society was the ancient elven kingdom of Arlathon. As far as we know, most of the elves who lived during this period 
were magic users. According to Solus, magic was innate to everyone. And this is part of the reason why ancient elves didn't die. They entered into what they call Uthanera, which uh, I think it means living sleep or something similar to that, where they basically go into almost a catatonic state of sleep. And they're not quite dead, uh, but, they're, but they're also not alive. And, and so magic is the reason why, why they were able to do that. And so also, as we know from the history, when supposedly the ancient elves came into contact with humans, that's when their immortality and their magic started fading. Right. And so according to Solus, at least, if we take that for what it's worth, this happened because of the veil. Like there was not a veil at this time. And so the line between the material world and the fade was a lot thinner and a lot more blurred. And so it's easier to access magic. Exactly, exactly. And that's what I was just getting to next. As we've talked about very often before in minus 1195 ancient age to venture conquered Arlafon. And the court of the magisters is what they were called. They officially became the royal court of Tevinter. And they made sure that magister was the only rank of nobility that was recognized in Tevinter. So essentially what happens is Arlathon is founded and, and exists as the empire that it was, the magic empire. And then they're conquered by Tevinter and Tevinter becomes the next magic empire. And, and so it's after, after that, that we really start to see laws against magic. We start to see the regulation of magic more. Um, So I think that's pretty notable that it wasn't always like it is currently in Dragon Age. Circles didn't always exist. Um, There have been different types of magic to exist in history. Right. So let's talk about the onset of magic a little bit. Magic is an innate ability. But it does not appear immediately at birth. Throughout Thetis, the onset of magic has ranged widely in different characters. And I mean like a vast spectrum of ages. So for example, Meryl was four years old when her magic started, whereas Fiona was 14. That's the 10-year age gap. That's a really big difference. So if Fiona lived in like the Harry Potter universe, like she would not be going to Hogwarts. She missed the cutoff. Right. And I think that it's also interesting because it means that they get at the circles at different times. And I think this is a big deal because, and I can't remember who comments on this and what characters, but it's talking about like, well, one character is talking to another and saying, well, you don't really know what it's like in a circle because you came to it so late. You didn't grow up in the circle. And I think that's a big deal. Like when this, when you're taken, when you're four, even though Meryl is Dalish and she's raised among her clan, but when you're taken to the circle, when you're four years old and then that's all, you know, like I don't have very many memories from when I was four. So the idea that you would have most of your life would be in this circle would change your perspective than someone who came in say at 14 or even like eight or nine. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, and I also think that we see this, we, we see proof of this in game. Um, 
because we see different characters taking their harrowings at different times. They don't all do it at once. Um, and, and for example, if you are a mage origin in Origins, you take your harrowing, you pass, you come out of it, and Jowen immediately is asking you all kinds of questions about it and is talking about, I want to take mine, but they won't let me. Uh. And we know that the reason for that is because he's practicing blood magic. But that goes to show you that everyone doesn't do it at the same time. And it's very much a test of when you're ready to do it. Makes sense. And we'll probably get into this, but like there's a big risk with the heroin. And so I'm sure that there's a process to make sure that like you are set up in the best chances to succeed your heroin. Because at least in its intention, you're not supposed to go in there with the intention of failing. Maybe under Meredith's circle, you might, but... Not Not in the ideal world, yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, before we get into types of magic, I think now might be a good time for a break. All right, well, let's do it. Enchantment? Enchantment! You need me. I am yours as always. All right, well, welcome to the middle of the show where we talk about all things that don't have to do with the Dragon Age lore cast in the lore, and we talk about all the other things, like thanking our patrons. Um, yes, so Shelby, do we have any new patrons? We don't have any new patrons. I think we thanked them all last week, but we do have all of our uh, regular patrons that we can thank. So do you want me to do that or do you want to? Uh, sure, you can go ahead. Okay, so we always thank our first five patrons and any new patrons or patrons at the Divine Tier or higher. We don't currently have anyone at the Divine Tier, so if you want your name read every single week, hop in on there. But our first five patrons are Lisa M., Genesis, Derek B., Fletcher M., and Zuba. Thank you so much for being our patrons. Yes, and we do actually have a new patron. Oh, oh, we do. Yes. Um. So uh, Christopher L. is a new uh, patron, five, $5 tier. So Christopher L., thank you so much for your contribution and joining the Patreon. Yes, and I'm so sorry I forgot you. And if you would like to support us on Patreon, you can go and find the link in the episode description. We would love to have your support. There are various tiers with all kinds of benefits from the most basic of ad-free episodes and early access to episodes to all the way to having your name read out on the on every show and joining us for our monthly patron chat, which is coming up in a couple of weeks. We also take this time to read any reviews we have. Reviews are a great way to support the podcast. Uh, they let other people know what's great about the podcast. They let know that this podcast is active um, and it's just, it puts the podcast higher up in search orders when we get good reviews and we have a lot of reviews. And so you can do that on Apple or Spotify. You can rate us on Spotify or on Apple. You can leave us five stars and leave us some words. And if you do that, we will read your review on a future episode of the show. And so Shelby, do we have a review to read today? We do. So this one is titled Best Dragon Age Podcast. It's This is what it says. Do you like dragons, elves, magic, and orcs, aka Darkspawn? Have you ever wanted to know more about Dragon Age without finding all of the codex entries? Have you ever visited a fandom wiki? 
then this is the podcast for you. Seriously, Shelby and Austin are fantastically amazing. I can't stop raving about them and their work. And I've got to do my part to get the word out to potential new listeners. I bet they would even beat the game developers at Dragon Age Trivia. I'm not sure about that, but thank you. <laughs> Give them a listen. And I promise you that you won't be disappointed. Man, draw stays light. Guide you guide your ears to their sage wisdom. And this review is from Cash Collins. And we are so thankful for this awesome review. Yes, thank you so much. All right. We also want to know that we are still running our show us your Hawks or Heroes, Hawks and Heralds. Uh, and you can share that via Discord, via Twitter or an email. And do we have one to share today? We do. Woohoo! We had one of everything today. So this um, hero is from Will P and he emailed us. This is our first email submission. So thank you for being the first one. And this one is Band Oliver, the hero of Ferelden. So hero Band Oliver is named for Will's two dogs, Bandit and Ollie. Cute. We'd love to see pictures. So join our Discord server and send us pictures, please. Um, so Band Oliver started as a Dalish elf who was saved by Duncan after his friend Talion not touched a mirror in a cave that knocked Ben Oliver unconscious. Afterwards, he went to Dun went with Duncan to Ostagar, where he met Alistair and the other recruits. He was more focused on saving the dog, of course, but also acquired all the resources needed to recruit more wardens. In addition, he got treaties for the elves, dwarves, and soldiers to join the fight. Band Oliver was kind of a player. He went back and forth between Morrigan and Liliana. And while ultimately settling on Liliana, he did perform the dark ritual with Morrigan. When he was in Orzammar, he helped King Balin take the throne. And he did not want to go through the provings because he had already done enough fighting and proving himself already there. And he was also instrumental in starting an Orzammar chantry. In Redcliffe, Band Oliver had no choice but to kill Connor, and during the lands meet, he stepped aside while letting King Alistair kill the traitor Loghain. All other members were recruited and had solid relationships with Band Oliver. As a request to Alistair, the king granted significant amounts of Ferelden land to the Dalish. Thank you so much, Will, for submitting Band Oliver, the hero of Ferelden, to this segment. We are super pumped that we're able to feature him. Yes, thank you. And you, too, can show us your heroes, hawks, and heralds on our Discord. You can email it to us. You can reach out on Twitter. Uh, wherever you can find us, you can send us your heroes, hawks, and heralds. And so I think that's all we have for the middle of the show today. I think so. Let's get back to it. Alrighty, let's go. Well, that was uh, Orlesian. Dareth Shiran. You fear barbarians will swoop down upon you. Yes, swooping is bad. Okay, so let's talk about different kinds of magic. And there are a lot, um, like a lot. So don't take this as an exhaustive list, though I have tried to compile most of them. <laughs> So first, I think, is the iconic, iconic blood magic. Okay, right? Blood magic is a school of magic that taps into the power within your blood 
pretty self-explanatory. But this fuels your spell casting and gives the user way more power than you would have by just using mana or lyrium. Typically, we see blood magic used for violent purposes, such as demon summoning, mind control, etc. It's been said that the Evanuris used blood magic to empower themselves and subjugate the ancient elven people, while Thalzian of Tevinter used it to establish himself as king and emperor and spread worship of the old gods. We also know lots of Grey Wardens have used blood magic as well to defeat blights. So while blood magic is extremely stigmatized in Thetis and even Tevinter disavows its public use technically, it's also been used throughout history to advance powerful people's goals. And I think the reason that this is the big reason that the Chantry completely disavows blood magic. And it has to do with the fact that it can be used to control minds. And that's the big thing about the tenet. You know, magic must be used to serve man, never to rule over him. And that's really where it gets to. I don't think if people were just using it as a means to like be better mages and like have more powerful spells, I don't think the Chantry would have that much of an issue with it. Um, But the fact that it's used to control other people and to bind demons and spirits into the world, I think that's what is the biggest thing. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, My personal opinion, and this is like a little bit of my own values, but like, I believe money in our world is a corrupting influence. Like, you know, once you once you have millions or billions of dollars, like that's a corrupting influence in your life. And it's hard for you to empathize with other people who don't have that much money. I kind of see blood magic as an allegory for that because once you use a little bit of it, you can't stop. You always want more. Once you start using more and more and more, it consumes you and corrupts you until you, you can't stop. You might start saying, oh, I'm, I'm only going to use it on myself. I'm only going to use my own blood. And then you might move on to, to animal blood. And then you might move on to people who are willing. And then you're probably going to move on to forcing people and enslaving people so you can use their blood to power your magic. Yeah, and I think from like a thematic and writing point of view, in a lot of ancient religions and religions that existed, especially in the like, judaic world of that like area blood was considered like the source of life like so to steal blood or use blood would be taking the very essence and power of life and so that's what like and that's why it was necessary for blood to be used in like sacrifices because it was the power of life the power was in the blood and that's the kind of theme that we're getting here with blood magic is that taking that sacrifice allows you a shortcut basically into magic, mm-hmm. whether you're using your own blood or someone else's. Right. So let's move on from blood magic a little bit to something that's semi-related. And you may not have heard of this one. This one's called blight magic. So the taint, the dark spawn taint carries magical power. And that's what allows the dark spawn emissaries to cast their spells. And prior to the fifth blight, first enchanter Ramil 
explained that the darkspawn possess a different kind of magic that is driven by the taint. It doesn't just come from it. It's driven by it. And he had conspired with the architect to learn this type of magic. Both the architect and Ramil were able to launch deadly blasts of black fire. And this comes from the uh, blight magic. And if you're interested in this story, you can read The Calling. Um, I specifically took this information from chapters 18 and 19, I believe. So um, if you're interested, you can go look that up. But we also see Blight Magic in Origins. In the DLC Soldier's Peak, we meet a character named Avernus. And we find out that he has discovered a way to use the taint in Grey Warden blood to cast powerful magic. Even non-mage wardens can access this since all wardens carry the taint. So that is kind of a mix between both blood magic and blight magic. And then lastly about blight magic, Vivian actually compares blight magic to one of three wine glasses that Corypheus is drinking from, along with ordinary magic and elven magic. So again, Vivian hypothesizes that Corypheus is delving into three main types of magic, blight magic, elven magic, and like ordinary magic that he would have learned when he was first starting out. And Solus adds in this conversation, he adds that the false calling that is created by Corypheus is indeed a form of blight magic. And then he condemns it saying that the glass, going back to Vivian's metaphor, is poisoned and that no intelligent creature should attempt to use the taint safely as it corrupts everything it touches. And that's a conversation between them after Here Lies the Abyss. I've never heard that conversation. I had to look it up on YouTube, um, but it was very interesting and enlightening. It also explains how you can have, because one question that we both have always had is like, how do you have a Genlock emissary because it's kind of like goes back and forth but the theory is is like when dwarfs interact with a brood mother they become genlocks and so you really shouldn't be able to have a genlock emissary because dwarfs can't become mages but Mm -hmm. i guess the use of blight magic allows for that to be bypassed yeah absolutely so let's move on um into another interesting school of magic so There are four classical schools of magic, and these are entropy, creation or nature, primal, and spirit. And these are there, we see them in all of the games. Entropy is the first, usually called the school of negation, basically like nothing lives without death. Um, And basically entropy spells are spells that enable mages to cripple their enemies by attacking their life force. And then creation or nature magic is kind of the opposite of that. It manipulates natural forces, uh, bringing new things into life. And um, there's a codex entry, the four schools of magic creation that says creation requires incredible considerable finesse more than any other school and is therefore rarely mastered those mages who have made a serious study of creation are the highest in demand 
useful in times of peace as well as war. And we see that because we actually do have, we do interact with a master of the creation school of magic in Anders. Oh, yeah. Um, Anders yeah. is a is a master of the creation school. And we see that in that he is highly, highly wanted by the refugees of Ferelden. And so much that there's a lot of them that are willing to die to protect his identity when they think Hawk might do him harm. Yeah, very true. So the third school is primal. Um, and this also is a synonym for power. And um, this is the most offensive school. So it's your fire attacks, your ice attacks, your lightning, very devastating, powerful attacks. This is what most people think of when they hear the word magic. Fun fact. Are you ready? Yeah. In DA2, the lightning spells are not in the primal tree. What are they in? I believe they're in, it's whatever one that also has the rock spells like rock armor and stone fist. I don't remember what it's called. You keep going. I'm going to look it up. Okay. Well, the last school is spirit. Um, and I'm going to read from the codex for this because it's really interesting. And this is the same codex I quoted a minute ago. It is from the faith itself that this magic draws its power. Students of the school cover everything from direct manipulation of mana and spell energies to the study and summoning of spirits themselves. By its nature, an esoteric school, as most others know virtually nothing about the Fade, studies of spirit magic are often misunderstood by the general populace or even confused for blood magic, an unfortunate fate for a most useful branch of study. So basically they're studying the fate itself. They're studying how to use mana. They're studying how to summon spirits and use them. So it is very similar to blood magic, but, but still distinct. I think it's a good example to like the difference between like a blood mage and something that like Wynn uses. Yeah, true. Um, and Anders with justice kind of walks that line too. Um, mm -hmm. for a while mm -hmm. but um the answer to your question the lightning spells are in the primal tree in da2 the fire and ice spells are in a tree called elemental interesting i feel like that's a little lore breaking probably but what well, it's bioware what do we expect well you know da2's timeline was also super compressed also in da in Dragon Age Inquisition, the fire, ice, and lightning are their own trees. Well, they don't really have these trees in Inquisition. Like, there's mm. not, it just doesn't really exist in the same way because they compress the trees down a little bit. So I take Inquisition as its own thing because these, these schools of magic still exist in Inquisition. They're just not specific trees that you can gain abilities from. Right. So let's talk about a few specializations. So there's Force Mage in DA2, and they specialize in powers like telekinesis and using their mind as a weapon. And they actually like bend the laws of nature to crush and debilitate their foes. It's very, very powerful. And Kirkwall's Circle actually has a higher than usual amount of Force Mages, which is interesting. That's my favorite tree in DA2. I know Blood Mage is obviously overpowered. It's always overpowered. But I love doing Force Mage 
um, solely for the ability in spell that's called Fist of the Maker, which is basically just like you bring down force and knock everyone down. Um, Bethany Hawk is a force mage if you send her to when she finally either joins the warden or goes to the circle. She has the force mage tree specialization. Right. She is the only companion. The, the Hawk twins are the only companions who don't get their own like companion tree in DA2. Yeah, I think that's sad. I don't like it. Yeah. Okay, so my next specialization that I want to talk about is necromancy. And we're going to spend a little bit of time on this one because of what we said in our last episode about how the color scheme of the Dragon Age Dreadwolf um, stuff is very similar to the necromancy color. So before we get into that, necromancy is a type of magic that specializes in binding spirits, especially those who are drawn to death. So it's a little bit distinct from spirit magic, but very similar. According to Solus, however, a necromancer is actually binding wisps that are too simple to be considered spirits. So not fully spirits with like the ability to communicate. Um, they're more they're more binding wisps that are that are not fully like they don't fully have thought, if that makes sense. Dorian uses this specialization. And according to Mary Kirby, who we quote her all the time. And she's a writer at Bioware. Um, she says that necromancy does qualify as blood magic. However, Vias Anaxis, who is the necromancy trainer, argues this, quote, blood magic consumes life, manipulating and destroying the living, while necromancy honors life by venerating the dead. I would argue that it's not quite venerating the dead. It's more like using or exploiting the dead um but i see his point right i think it comes down to like his point of difference i feel like comes to intention whereas like blood magic's intention is to gain power and to manipulate other people and bind demons and spirits to your will so that you can become more powerful whereas necromancy is a little more complicated than that and i think that has to do with the next point that you're going to get to which is the mortalitasi yes exactly my next point was literally how is this different from the mortalitasi and honestly it's not in the specialization quest in inquisition you have to craft a ceremonial mortalitasi skull you also gather navaran skulls and so to me this suggests that they're one in the same the difference only being that the Mortalitasi are a specific subgroup of necromancers in Navara. So not mm-hmm. all necromancers are Mortalitasi, but all Mortalitasi are necromancers. Yeah, it's like a point of like all of the Antiven crows are assassins, but not all uh, assassins are Antiven crows. Right, exactly. Okay, so the next one is Rift Mage. And this is a new um, type of magic. It was introduced in Inquisition. So Rift Mages manipulate the Fade and the Veil and use them both as a resource to produce powerful magic. Rift Mages basically take their mastery of the Fade to the next level with their specialization because it allows them to use um, 
offensive spells in ways that you couldn't previously. So um, it is a relatively new branch of magic that began to emerge more after the breach um, in Inquisition, but also has ties back to force magic in DA2. Which makes the whole Fist of the Maker spell much more interesting because like, you know, they say the Maker dwells within the within the fade somewhere um even though the golden city or black city or whatever it is is empty right so yeah yeah go ahead sorry i was just gonna say it just is interesting to me like the what they name the spells like is it named that because of what it is or is it how like the sentient beings of thetis are interpreting what's happening Mm -hmm. yeah i i don't think we know okay so our last type of magic that i want to talk about is actually not a type of magic at all um but this is a hedge mage and you may have heard uh vivian throw this term out as an insult before but hedge mages are essentially untrained magic users who um wield powers and magic that are developed outside of conventional magical training. It was created by the Chantry, this term, and it is used in a derogatory manner. So for example, Solus essentially pretends to be an elven hedge mage apostate who just lives in the forest. We know that's not true, but that's, that's what he uh, promotes himself as. A lot of hedge mages aren't aware of their power. And hedge magic was also studied extensively by Magister Alinius at the height of the Tower's Age. And he coined them to, uh, at, with a term called arcanist derangement and argued that magical talent is like a flowing river. When expressed through a mage, it finds a proper outlet through spellcraft. Left to its own devices, it flows unexpectedly, and thus hedge mages are created. Once becoming a hedge mage, there is no turning back. They cannot learn and cast spells as normal mages know them. So to me, that would suggest that Solus... um, his whole alibi of being a hedge mage would be seen through pretty easily. Yeah. Cause he's powerful. <laughs> yeah. And like he uses spells that we all know. I mean, he also uses some, I'm sure that are like ancient Elven, but also, yeah, I don't know. But anyways, prior to the formation of the circles, Hedge magic was commonly practiced in the form of ancient traditions and rituals with knowledge handed down from one generation of practitioners to the next. There's a lot of examples of hedge mages in Thetis. So some of these would be the witches of the chastened, um, the shamans of the Avar, and the seers of Ravain. Kunari Sarabas are also basically hedge mages with a little bit of of a difference, but they can be lumped into this category as well. I think it's so interesting that the Sarabas, like they only use lightning spells. Maybe that's just like a gameplay thing that Bioware did to like be his enemy, but it's just interesting to me. Yeah, I don't know. It is interesting. Do you have any thoughts on all these different schools of magic? 
it's really interesting because I've always considered like dr- Dragon Age mages are very much in like the D&D sorcerer class, which are like how sorcerers get their magic is they are either through a bloodline or something like that. They have an innate magic within them. It's something that they're born with, whereas like your other spellcasters like Druid gets it from communing with nature, cleric and paladins get them from their oath and divine like allegiance and then wizards study and warlocks make a deal but sorcerers are the ones that's born with it but they've kind of like combined this and like okay yes you're born with this innate ability now it's time to study these different schools of magic and you know the student in me would be like i want to know everything about all of them i don't want to specialize in one yeah it would be so hard to pick just one Mm mm-hmm but I mean, if I had to pick one, I would probably pick something like creation or even entropy. Of course you would. Um, just because I think that I would want something that's more like helpful to the world than like offensively important to me. Yeah. I don't know what I would pick. I'm pretty drawn to, I don't know, I was giving you crap, but I think I'm pretty drawn to creation and nature magic too. <laughs> Um, okay, so do you want to move on to our final topic before our side character? Yeah, let's do it. So I thought we could talk a little bit about magic and modern Thetis. We've talked all about the history, where it comes from, all that stuff. But what is magic and magic users? What are they like now? So most mages in modern Thetis, at least prior to 940, belonged to a circle of magi. They're typically taken to a circle as a child or a teenager where they undergo the apprenticeship process until they're ready to undergo their harrowing. And the harrowing is a test that all apprentices, apprentices must undertake to become a full mage and member of the circle. Kunari, um, they pretty much have no tolerance for mages nor for magic. They refer to mages as Sarabas, which literally translates to dangerous thing. Those among them who are found to possess magical ability are kept on leashes by special soldiers who are called Arvarad, and they're fitted with like blinders over their eyes. Their horns are sheared off, and in extreme cases, their lips are stitched together. If a Sarabas is found practicing forbidden magic, their tongues are cut out to prevent them from corrupting others. This is extreme to the max. And I find it a little bit horrifying um, because it's not like they can control it. It's not like they chose to have magic. It's not like they sought it out. Um, So for me, I'm always taken aback by the Cunari response to magic. Well, and it just makes sense because like, I think the Canari kind of represent like an extreme view of order in the world, at least to how they're presented to us when we interact them with the game. Bull kind of negates that and like undoes that assumption a little bit, but like they represent this idea of like very ordered and everything has their place and magic causes chaos. And I'm sure that they see that and it's just, they take it to the extreme because anything that is detrimental or that could undo the the cune is extremely dangerous to the cunari yeah i get that but i still think it's horrifying 
Right. Um, the quest with the Cerebas in DA2 is one of my least favorite things that ever happens because it's the, the Cerebas literally has no agency or decision making in that entire quest. He's manipulated by Sister Patrice and then executed by the Kundari that find him. Yeah, I hate it. It's it's horrific. And that's the only word I can use for it. Okay, so there are two notable exceptions to my previous statement that most mages and Thetis belong to a circle. And the two exceptions are Avar mages and Dalish mages. So for the Avar, the Avar's mages are incredibly powerful shamans and they're referred to as augurs. They see the spirits as gods. And the purpose of their augur or their mage is to communicate and consult with the spirit gods and provide advice to their ruler or thane is what they're referred to. So mages in training for the Avar willingly undergo spirit possession so that they can learn from them. This is radically different from any other culture in Thetis. I find it extremely fascinating. We learned a lot about them in the in two quests in Inquisition in the whole Frostback Basin DLC. And also when you go to the Fallow Mire, you can meet an Avar um, Augur and he tells you some of this stuff too. I found it extremely fascinating and I hope we get to learn more about the Avar in new Dragon Age content. So very, very different from pretty much everyone else in Thetis. I think it's interesting that they basically have the exact opposite of a heroine. Like a heroine is designed that you resist and don't give in to spirit possession. And the Avar have the opposite of that. They go to be possessed, literally. Yeah, that's a really good point. I hadn't noticed that. Okay, so the Dalish. The Dalish elves are basically, for all intents and purposes, the most accepting of mages. Dalish believe that magic is a gift from the creator or creators, and that study of magic is the key to rediscovering their lost history. They also recognize the risk of magic. And so because of this, they will exchange their mages so that all clans have enough. Mage children are personally instructed by the clan's keeper, who is always a mage. So their leader is always a mage. It's very interesting to me that both the Dalish and Taventer, their leader is always a mage. Well, and it makes sense because like Taventer, mage, like magic is power, like in all aspects of society. But to the Dalish, like you said, like magic is a key to their history. And I'm sure that that being established is some reminiscence of remembering their empire in Arlathon. Yeah, I, I agree. So Dalish magic tends to be more practical and subtle than circle magic, which makes sense because that very much goes along with their culture. Um, and their, their magic often revolves around healing and herbalism and tends to be focused on natural forces. So Dalish mages don't generally use any magic involving spirits because, because they believe that they are inherently dangerous which I find incredibly ironic 
due to Solus's like whole everything. Yeah, definitely. Which makes you feel like I feel like a Dalish Inquisitor who is maybe not a mage, or even if it is a mage, like the way Solus talks about spirits. I wish there was more like unique dialogue you could have of like how an actual how a Dalish would actually react to that because their view is similar to the Chantry, but a little different. I just think yeah. that's interesting. Yeah, that's fair. Okay, well, do you have any other thoughts about magic? I know this was a lot of content um, because this is a huge topic. So any final thoughts before we move into our side character? Not for me. So let's get on it. Okay. So our side character for the day is one that you probably don't know of if you haven't read the books. Um, but this person is one of the most important people in the Dragon Age universe. I'm saying that maybe even top five most important people, period. And this person's name is Faramond. And you're probably thinking I'm crazy right now because you haven't heard of him. Well, let me tell you about Faramond. He is an elven tranquil mage. And he's also a very close personal friend of Wynn's. And we also meet him in Asunder. And for a book that I don't particularly care for, we sure do highlight a bunch of its characters. <laughs> well, its content is very important for the current state of Thetis. It is. You're right. So Faramond is commissioned by Divine Justinia V to investigate the nature of the Rot of Tranquility. She wanted to know if the right could be altered so that it could deny a mage's power without completely obliterating the mind and the emotional center of the mage. She also wanted to know if the right could be reversed. This is interesting to me because as we know from Dragon Age Inquisition, the seekers know that Yes, the right of tranquility can be reversed. So that tells me that the seekers don't even tell the divine that the right of tranquility can be reversed. To me, that kind of makes sense because the seekers are older than the Chantry. And I think that, well, I guess the organization that becomes the Templars and the seekers is older than the Chantry. Yeah, um, not by much. But yeah, with the first Inquisition. And so I think that with that establishment, probably the the first ever Lord Seeker probably decided that like this is a secret that is best kept in the ranks of the Seekers. I don't even think like the um, leader of the Templars would know that. I think it is a secret that is only kept by the Lord Seeker. Well, we know that's right because because Cassandra basically finds out because she's the only one left. So back to Faramond. Um, Faramond is sent to Adamant Fortress and he started experimenting and trying to figure out if, if the right of tranquility was reversible or not. Um, early on, Faramond came to the conclusion very early on that reversal was impossible in the material world so he immediately turns to the fade 
is the possibility of reversing the right of tranquility possible in the fade? The veil, however, <laughs> was already very thin at adamant. So Pharamond believed that a mere attempt at demonic possession, not, not even a successful attempt, just an attempt at demonic possession would reverse his tranquility. And he succeeded. It did. It did succeed, but it also allowed a crap ton of demons to pass into the world. And they possessed all of the keeps people and caused a lot of chaos. And that's why Adamant Fortress is in the state that it's in when we see it in Inquisition, because all of its people have been possessed and gone crazy, and then we get to take it back. Um, so Pharamond is experimenting and allows demons to come in the world unintentionally, of course. But he was then possessed by a pride demon. Um, but he kept himself imprisoned in a binding circle. So it's at this point that Wynn and the companions find him and rescue him in the fade. So Pharamond's experiment did allow demons to overrun Adamant Fortress, but he did discover through his research that it is possible to reverse the right of tranquility by having a spirit touch the mind of a tranquil. He was, however, unable to find an alternative to the right to deny a mage his or her power. So they couldn't get their power back. Uh, but they could get their emotional center back. So the rest of the book is kind of complicated, but essentially it boils down to this information is so important that they can't keep it to themselves. And they end up telling a lot of people about what Faramond has discovered that the right of tranquility is reversible. And this is what leads to the mages in Val Royale voting to break free of the circles um, because they've discovered all of this. And, and then it just, it all blows up. So that's why I say that Faramond is one of the most important people in Dragon Age because he discovers this. And sure, Divine Justinia sends him to, but he was the one that had to do it. Otherwise, no one would know that this right was reversible it would still be a seeker secret i'm really surprised and maybe you know more because you've actually finished asunder and i haven't i'm surprised that like the seekers didn't hear about this investigation and send people like on the down low to try to stop him they did yeah. they they did <laughs> um it just it just happened that the people that they sent got there around the same time as Wynn and the party. Um, so they couldn't really stop everything. Um, and there was a lot of arguing and fighting and, and all kinds of stuff with them. Basically what happens is Reese, who we've talked about before, uh, argues that they just need to bring everything to divine Justinia. And that, that argument prevails. Um, unfortunately, my most hated character in all Dragon Age, Lord Seeker Lambert. <clears throat> I would have words for that man. I would throw hands if I ever met him. 
Anyway, he insists that pheromones should be made tranquil again uh, because his heightened emotional state was said to make him more susceptible to demonic influence, which like, come on, that's just cruel, you know? So at this point, under the threat of tranquility again for the second time, Faramond has just been through so much in his life and he just wants to die. Like he doesn't want to live anymore. He's, he's gone through all this stuff. He's made this big breakthrough and he just can't do it anymore. Um, so he begs Cole to kill him and Cole refuses. And so eventually he's killed by Adrian, who is another character in Asunder. And then Adrian frames Reese for the murder. And then Lambert accuses Reese of, of murdering Faramond. And it's all just a big thing. All of this we've discussed in both Lambert's and Reese's side character highlights. So you can go back and listen to those episodes or you can read more about this in the Asunder book. But Faramond is an important character. Like I said, he's one of the most important characters in all of Dragon Age because his discoveries are so monumental. And when you combine his discoveries with the knowledge of the Seekers, it could truly ages who were unfairly made tranquil. And, and that's why Faramond is truly this revolutionary character. Yeah, I mean, he's a hero, really. Yeah, he absolutely is. And I wish we knew more about him. Like, I, we don't really know much about his early about his early life. Um, we don't know much about, like, really anything about him. We know that um, Reese was his apprentice for a while. And we know that we can find a logbook in Inquisition that references him. It's in a cave in the Western approach. And uh, the logbook basically says like, we can't confirm that Faramond has had any luck. Uh, it may not be possible, but he wants to continue the experiments. And that's pretty much all we get about him. It's interesting because like when you're finally fighting in Adamant Fortress and you get to the point right before the uh, fake archdemon shows up, they summon a pride demon right there at like where the veil is like ripped open, mm -hmm. which I just think is interesting that like he was possessed by a pride demon. So is that the same pride demon? Just I have no I idea. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I'm not sure we know the answer to that question. Hmm. Well, do you have anything else about him? Um, no, I think that's it. All right. Well, thank you for listening to the Dragon Age Lorecast. We will see you next week. Thanks for listening to the Dragon Age Lorecast. As always, you can find us on Twitter at DA Lorecast. If you have any lore questions, topics to unpack, or side character suggestions, email them to us at dalorecast at gmail.com. The Dragon Age Lorecast is a part of the Robots Radio Rocket Club. You can join the Robots Radio Network Discord by clicking the link in our episode description. If you enjoyed our show, we'd love it if you'd subscribe and give us a review. See you next time! Hi, I'm Aaron. And I'm Ariel. And we're the hosts of the Legend of Zelda Lorecast, a podcast about all things Legend of Zelda. From Errol to Zora, 
and all the fun things in between. If you're ready to dive deep and learn more about the Legend of Zelda lore and everything surrounding it, come join us on the Legend of Zelda Lorecast. You can find us on Apple iTunes, Spotify, Google, or wherever else you get your podcasts. We hope to see you soon.